Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. You're listening to the Pennsylvania Woodsman, powered by Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network. This show is driven to provide relatable hunting and outdoor content in the Keystone State and surrounding Northeast. On this show, you'll hear an array of perspectives from biologists and industry professionals to average Joes with a lifetime of knowledge. All centered around values aiming to be better outdoorsmen and women both in the field as well as home and daily life. No clicks, no self-interest, just the light in the pursuit of creation. And now, your host, the pride of Pennsylvania, the man who shoots straight and won't steer you wrong, Johnny Appleseed himself, Mitchell Shirk. Mitchell Shirk. Mitchell Shirk. Mitchell Shirk. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Pennsylvania Woodsman. And I must say, I am sick of summer. I thought it was over, but we are right back to this heat. It was freaking hot this Labor Day weekend. It was crazy, but it didn't stop me from doing stuff. I just did a lot of sweating in the process. Uh, Monday, Labor Day, I went and I I did a couple uh, touch-up things, filled up a water hole, and hung a camera, made a mock scrape, did some things to get ready for uh, my spot here close to home. But then Sunday was the, the fun one. Sunday was the first day that I spent scouting for bear. I went and scouted a piece of, well, multiple pieces of public land in New Jersey for the opening of October bear season. And for those of you who don't know what that uh, looks like, they, they haven't had uh, a bear hunt for three years last year they under emergency action they had their segment b hunt which is in december and that also got uh, postponed slightly it was supposed to open on the opening day of their segment b firearms season but it was uh postponed in court with anti-hunters and was reopened late on tuesday afternoon of that week so a Tuesday afternoon into, you know, through the rest of that week is when it had opened. But that was a tough hunt. It was the first time I'd ever been there. So I wanted to go in October because, in my opinion, it's just way better time to connect on bears. The earlier, the better, as what I've learned from my own hunting experiences and networking with some other people who are good bear hunters. So anyway, uh, they, are, they now have a, a bear management plan in place for the next five years. They're planning on having organized bear hunts. And I'm hoping to connect and participate in that. And I'd really like to shoot one with a bow. So the way it goes, the segment A hunt that they have, I believe, opens October 9th. Uh, it's a Monday. And then it's it uh, it's open for one week with archery until Saturday, I believe, the 14th. But halfway through that week is when a, a muzzleloader season opens up. It's a firearm season. And you can use basically an inline muzzleloader or any legal muzzleloader like you'd have here in Pennsylvania. But that's for three days. That's the end of the week, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I am purchasing an archery license. I'm going with a bow. It is bow or bust for me on this week-long hunt. And I did some scouting, and I found some great stuff. The first spot I went to looked good. And, and keep in mind, the places that I was going, um, 
I was I was a little bit spoiled, a little bit fortunate. I I, I reached out to a couple people, and uh, I I got the inside scoop on a couple of places that I should check out for bear specifically places that uh, people had deer hunted in the past and said used to be really good deer hunting but there was so many bears that they they feel that it impacted the quality of their deer hunting so uh, i checked it out the first place i went to not a lot of agriculture around it uh it was mostly big woods with some swamps uh now there was people there there was there was there was like camp, I don't know if it was a campground or what it was that I was hearing people in the not so, you know, in the distance. But there was bear sign there. I could see that there was bear in the area. I found some tracks and swamps and beds and and things like that. But most of it wasn't that fresh, and there was nothing that was like, ooh, this is this looks really good. But anyway, I decided I had some cameras. I hung one at that spot. Went to the second spot, and the second spot was mind-boggling i couldn't believe the things i was finding i mean i barely stepped foot in the woods i was getting fresh bear scat and i get to the edge of this lake and this grassland and there's just trails that any other time if you you, if you glance at it you're a deer hunter you think yeah it's deer trail no big deal but when you look closely at the trails they're bear trails there's no deer tracks in them it was bear tracks they were wider and uh, I started walking some of these paths, and it was ridiculous of the places they led me into some thick, nasty cover, crawling on my hands and knees, loaded with bear scat um, at a lot of transition edges, took me into an overgrown meadow that was like loaded with goldenrod and you know shrubs and stuff like that, and it was just trails and beds in that, places where they were laying and rolling around. Um, and then I, I ended up working my way up to the edge of the public private land. And on the private land, there was, uh, there was corn. And when I got to that edge, I chased a bear. There was a, there was a, I, I, all I saw was a mature bear running away from me. And so right behind it, I looked and out of the corn, here comes a couple cubs. So it was a south cubs. And I believe there was definitely two cubs. There might have actually been three cubs with her, I think. It was kind of hazy and I was, you know, looking through brush at the same time because I was like right on the edge of the property. Uh, I was on the transition there and they ran into the woods. I heard the mother uh, chomping her teeth and barking at them like they do to call them, you know, from danger. So I'm standing there thinking, wow, this is really cool. I actually got my phone out in time to video some of the cubs run into the brush, right? And I'm sitting there, and I'm, I'm looking at my phone, looking at, I'm thinking about access and the places I've been. I'm looking at my pins, and I look up, and it was probably not even five minutes later, I looked, and here comes a sow. She comes back out of the woods, and she turns, and she's coming right to me. And she has her ears pinned, and she looks like she's not happy. And, uh, you know, that was the first time that I was ever nervous in the bear woods. You know, I've been, I've bear hunted since I'm 12 years old. I've trailed wounded bear. Um, I've been on my hands and knees in some places, been around some big ones and it it never bothered me. Uh, But I always said, if I ever ran into a situation with a sow and cubs, that could potentially be a little frightening. And that was frightening. She, uh, she was coming right to me, and of course, I'm in the state of New Jersey, who, in my opinion, has some of the worst firearm laws that you could possibly imagine, so I can't be carrying a pistol, and I all I have is my pocket knife. So I got my pocket knife thinking, you know, this is the only hope I have if a bear attacks me. So I screamed at her, 
And she put the brakes on and looked at me, and I screamed at her again, and she just turned around and she went back in the woods. So looking back on it now, she probably didn't know what I was when I came into the corn. She probably just heard a noise, ran off, called the cubs, and then came back out when she had the cubs to see what was going on. But I honestly thought that she was, you know, there's a million things going through my mind. One was the fact that, you know, New Jersey has a growing bear population that hasn't been hunted. They're really not afraid of people. So just one more thing for her to not be afraid of me. And then, of course, she's got cubs. If You know, I thought, you know, God forbid there's another cub in the corn yet that she didn't get. But anyway, it all worked out. I was like paranoid the rest of the time, but I, I still did a little bit of scouting, put a couple pins on. I, uh, I stuck a camera out. So I'm hoping to do one more scouting mission at least before I go uh, for opening day. I'm planning on going down and hunting opening day. It'd be nice if I could find you know a few other spots just in case something happens with that one. But uh, yeah, real exciting. So leading into this week's show... I wanted to take a little bit of a different course of action in our episodes. You know, we're always doing a lot of things when it comes to preparing for hunting season, strategies, stories. We did a lot of meat preparation stuff this year. So with that, I wanted to give a different perspective this week on our episode. Um, I have with me one of my uh, one of my clients that I work with, Dustin Kiefer from Mark M. Kiefer & Son farm in central Pennsylvania. They're a grain operation farm about 3,200 plus acres of, and and like I said, solely grain farmers. And we're going to talk about something pretty controversial, too many deer. And I know there's so many places that would say that that's not the case. And, you know, farmers are complainers that, you know, any amount of deer is too many. And um, I wanted to bring Dustin into the picture. I've had these conversations with him. I mean, some of the biggest things we talk about are the things that are out of our control it's the the lack of moisture and drought drought stricken soils and um you know deer pressure and groundhog pressure and tree lines and a lot of those things are some of the biggest yield impacts but the first result for this operation is not well we're just going to shoot a pile of deer that's that's not the case um it's quite interesting to see all the things that they are trying to do in order to maintain or increase their profitability as an operation, diversify their operation, and combat the the, the ever-growing deer population in their area that, uh, you know, would be fixed simply by shooting more deer. But, you know, that's not the easiest method, and they also have a mind that they enjoy hunting too. They enjoy wildlife. They want to work together with landowners in the surrounding neighborhood and not just eradicate deer. They're, they're trying to work. But I'm bringing this up because, in my opinion, in the places I go, I've said this before, there are some places in this state that have way too many deer. And, need, and it's not a shoot a two or three doe a year and it's fixed. I'm talking it, there needs to be dozens of deer shot in conjunction with quality habitat work done in the surrounding landscape. And that's one of the things we talk about. But this episode this week, it's really not, there's really no um, finger pointing. There's no end game. There's no solutions, nothing like that. This is solely just to give you an idea of what it's like being a grain farmer 
how they're dealing with this, what, what, what's been going on in the past, you know, you know three generations in Mark M. Kiefer and Sons, uh, through the lens of wildlife and le- letting us think about another perspective. Cause everybody thinks and you know, hunter, I shouldn't say that everybody, but a lot of people think that because we're hunters and we pay for licenses, what we want is what's most important, but the, the white-tailed deer and game populations in general, they, they affect a lot more than just us. And uh, I think it's important for there to be a balance. And I, I think putting different perspective, allowing you to maybe learn something from a grain operation might be worthwhile going into this season. Hopefully, if you're in an area where there's a lot of deer, but you're on your fence of whether you should shoot more, maybe this will help you. Know, help a farmer out. Uh, give you some different thoughts. So, with that, let's uh, let's get into this episode. Before we do, quick shout out for uh, for our partners here, Radix Hunting guys, stick and pick stuff, M Core cell cameras, Gen 600 cameras. I've got mine running. I've been really impressed with the stick and pick stuff. The ground mounts were awesome to put around food plots where I didn't have the the trees and stuff to get them at the exact location. The, the one at my house here, I had a, a water hole mock scrape combination. I wanted to get the perfect picture that I had both of that in frame. And uh, the ground mount ground mounts worked perfectly. I also got some of their hang-on tree stands in place as well as their, their ladders. Uh, I'm anxious to try them out. They're sturdy. They were easy to set up. They've been quiet in the process as far as climbing in and out of them. Really excited to check out Radix Hunting and then also Huntworth. Guys, if you're looking to get, you know, stock up on new clothing, if you're looking to go through your inventory and figure out what you do and don't need, condense the years of hunting clothing that you've got, you know, one outfit for day for for all the different weather scenarios you can find, get something from Huntworth that's going to be versatile, it's going to be quiet keep you warm cool dry whatever is there's very versatile things within there i really like the the disruption pattern their uh, their digital camouflage but i've been i've been really happy to use that i'm anxious to use it into the fall i uh, really like their lodi pack too i was using it this weekend when i was scouting comfortable really distributes weight across my back nicely so check out huntworth and with that let's get to this episode so uh, joining me today on today's show, I'm sitting here with my friend Dustin Kiefer. We're sitting here after doing a crop tour of your your stuff. So thanks for for making this happen. We had to had to find the non busy time of year to do this. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be able to sit down and and, uh, and chat about this. Absolutely, and it's better to do it in person. We were talking about that because you you like to listen to a bunch of podcasts. I we were do. talking about like it's it's so much nicer when it's in person and you got that because you just can't replace that with that phone conversation. Right. Yeah. The, the, the podcasters, you know, the, the guys that, you know, the elite that are insist on doing it in person, it's just at another level than, than the ones that are done via zoom or, you know, via. Yeah. It's not the fly by night podcast like this one. <laughs> nah, no, this is good, man. <laughs> oh man. So, um, this is going to be a little bit of a unique conversation compared to what we're normally used to just because um, we're going to talk about wildlife and hunting for sure. But I wanted, you know, w- with what I do as an agronomist, I wanted to try to incorporate a conversation that un- that helps people understand a little bit more about agriculture, what we do, and some of the issues that we face with your operation and just geographically speaking, because there are so uh, there, there's so much overabundance of crop damage 
and and wildlife damage and um, seeing it through the lens of somebody like yourself I think gives people good perspective so um, that's a pretty good segue into um, let you introduce yourself and and who you are and what we're doing here yeah yeah thanks Mitchell yeah my name is Dustin Kiefer so I farm uh, with my family in lower Northumberland County and I'm a fourth generation grain farmer and I moved back to the farm in 2013, so I've been, you know, full-time grain farming now for about 10 years. And uh, I guess really what, what we're here to talk about is, you know, the, the real marked increase in wildlife pressure and deer pressure that, that we've been seeing. You know, for a long time, probably for, you know, 20-plus years, we've been just a consistent corn and soybean rotation. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's really been the last couple of years that we've seen you know, wildlife pressure, deer pressure, uh, really begin to to become a, a big problem, you know, taking down corn and soybean yields that we has caused us to have to think outside the box and look at alternate ways on how we on how we farm to you know to manage that because the the economic damage is is quite significant in places. It is, and it's one of those things that a lot of people don't quite understand because uh, I think people just think you shoot deer in the fall, and you know, there's they're going to feed on some, but it's it's all manageable. But dollars and cents counts, especially when we're talking about the level of input costs that we have right now. Um, tell tell me a little bit more about like this operation because there's a lot of history in your your family farm here, and you know, a lot of generations, and and you kind of taking the reins over. Um, over time. Yeah, my great-grandfather bought the, the home farm here in, in, in Reebuck in Lower Northumberland County in uh, 1942. Uh, that was my great-grandfather. And then my grandfather um, you know, farmed throughout the 50s and the 60s and the 70s with my dad coming on board. And somewhere in, in the mid-70s, we made a, a, they made a, a conscious decision or shift to go to grain production, you know, to move away from, from kind of the, the more nostalgic old style farm that had a little bit of everything you know they had the truck patch of vegetables and the you know the the chickens and the the beef and the and the yeah, dairy the was never part of your operation no dairy was never never part of the operation so there in the mid 70s they made a a conscious decision to get into grain and had been you know really ever since predominantly corn and soybeans wheat was a was a was a part of the the, the rotation for a lot of years in the 80s but I think somewhere around 1991 or 1992 was the last, or excuse me, 2000, I'm, I'm uh, almost a decade off. 2000 was the last uh, wheat that we had grown. Oh, okay. So, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Yeah. We took a break from wheat now for, you know, probably almost 20 years. We, you know, you know, we've been working together now, but right. uh, wheat's been something we brought back into our rotation probably four years ago. Okay. Um, give, give everybody an idea, like what the size of your operation is because a lot of people just think you know home farm family farm um and stuff like that and you know there's there's ground you guys own but you're 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 grain farmers so you're you're renting ground yep. and there's there's a little bit different level there yeah sure we farm around a little more than three thousand acres in lower northumberland county so yeah it's, all... and it's it's a big chunk of ground there's a lot of moving parts with that yeah and, and what what is unique about the geography where where we're at in, in, in central PA is it's all small fields. Yeah. Okay. You know, so you, you bump into other growers, you know, from other, other States and, and the, uh, the, the efficiency of scale is, is way different. You know, you know, small fields to, to some farmers or growers is 30 or 40 acres or mm-hmm. 75 acres. You know, they're used to really, really big blocks, you know, shooting from the cuff here, average field size for, for growers in central PA 
you know, farming the, the, the shale hills that we're, we're used to is probably five to five to ten acres. You know, it's probably a pretty big size field. Absolutely. And then, you know, one of the things I was thinking, so you're, you've been uh, back for 10 years, I think you said, and multiple generations here. And I'm sure, you know, the main question I wanted to ask you was when you think about generational gaps and changes and stuff, a new generation, regardless in the aspect of life, is always going to bring something new to the table, a different view, different point of view. Um, so I ask you that question, like when you come, like what's been your outlook? But I want to preface it that by saying, like, you know, the conversations you've had with your father and, and family throughout the years, like, do you have an idea of like, the view on farming in this area from a generational standpoint, like how that's changed from your grandfather to your dad to now, like, is it, were there any trends in that time that really stand out to you? Yeah. You know, just to go back to what I said just a minute ago, you know, Pat, you know, my, my grandfather really spearheaded that change in the seventies to focus on grain, Yeah, you know, selling cattle, you know, getting out of, you know, out of, out of chickens, getting out of poultry and, and focusing on, you know, on one, one enterprise. And I think it was in 1991 or 1992 when my dad was, uh, you know, being involved in it was the decision to go no-till. You know, that was probably one of the biggest pivotal decisions that, that we made as an operation was to get away from heavy tillage, mm-hmm. which, um, was huge for a ground quality standpoint from soil health, you know, from the stewardship of the ground, because we have highly erodible light soils, so to move away from the heavy tillage of the the plow, mm-hmm. the disc, and all those passes, uh, and moving towards a no-till system where we're not disturbing the soil was, was a really, really big change uh, done in the early 90s. Um, and that was a big change that, you know, at, at that point, I'm assuming your, your dad had a lot of, of, of hand in, in taking over, making some of those big decisions. Absolutely. Yep. And, and, you know, then following that up to, to now you, like, there's been a lot of big changes that have happened on this operation yep. uh, since, since you've kind of taken the reins over. And, like, you know, give, give some ideas of how that transition's happened now with you and, and the new generation. Yeah, so probably one of the – if I had to sum it up in the last couple years, you know, five to seven years – the, the focus has been, you know, diversification risk management, and that that has taken shape in 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 the form of added crops. Mm-hmm. You know, we're moving away from that corn soybean rotation that for us carried so much more risk in terms of uh, presence of drought. You know, we're always you know, with the light soils that we have. You know, the, the joke is, but it's not really a joke, is that you're never more than four or five days away from the drought. You need Absolutely. constant rain throughout July and August you know, in those critical pollination and grain fill periods. So by bringing in multiple crops that look for that key weather at different times of the year, maybe some of it's fall seeded small grains like barley and wheat or other spring crops, you now spread that risk out. It's kind of, you know, similar to... A, the idea of like uh, diversifying your your four hundred one k portfolio. Yeah, you know you wouldn't want to put all your investment in one stock. So you try to spread it out. Yeah, and from a uh, from a oh, I lost my train of thought here. Uh, your <clears throat> excuse me. Yeah, I lost my train of thought. I had a question. I had a question I was going to ask you and forgot it. Oh well. Um, so one of the biggest things that we talk about shifting gears here when when we're talking about management. Um, we talk a lot about the things that are out of our control. Uh, you brought up moisture. I mean, 
moisture is one of those things where we have very limited control. I mean, you talked about no-till. Um, no-till is a practice that uh, reduces the, you know, reduces uh, erosion purposes. It also retains moisture a little bit better. But there's, sure. there's a ceiling in what your moisture holding capacity is in your soil. Um, the, the big one that we've talked about since I, since I started working with you is wildlife. We talk about water wildlife pressure we talk about uh, tree lines all things that have major limiting factors as far as maximizing yield potential and profitability um, and that has changed so as, as time has grown and I remembered the question I was going to ask you but I'll, I'll shift gears now the as you've gone through the generations how have you seen that progress from a wildlife standpoint? It is definitely increasing okay. with time. You know, if you look at it, if you were to chart it, I'm an engineer, I like data and charting and stuff like that, so my mind immediately goes to that. It is definitely increasing on the XY scale. You know, year by year, we're seeing more and more deer in in places you can drive around with a spotlight and see it, mm -hmm. you know, at the night. You know, pretty exponential, or has it been a gradual pace from, from the mm -hmm. 90s or something on? Yeah, that's pretty, I guess that's pretty qualitative to to take a stab at it i don't know if it's linear or exponential or what yeah. it is but it's, it's definitely increasing um in the late 90s or early 2000s there was a period of time where the deer were quote-unquote really bad we remember that there was a lot of deer okay and when deer season came around you know and back then you hunted deer differently yeah you got a group of guys together you filled out a roster you know and you had this big party of guys you had a good time and you drove for deer. You put on concerted efforts and drives. But comparatively speaking, the deer pressure was minimal back then compared to where we're at now. Because yeah, it's, it's, it's flat out unsustainable in some spots. You know, if you have the four acre, seven acre field that's surrounded on three sides by a considerable amount of bush, I mean, now that is the food, food source for a whole bunch of deer. And then with that perimeter also provides access for mainly groundhogs, but some of your other little critters are going to come and beat it up too. And uh, it's, well, I mean, what we have left, have left go some of spots like that just because it's you know, not a sustainable, you know, profitable thing to do. Yeah. They're basically just planting deer, deer plots, you know, food yeah. plots is what it ends up being. All right, folks, it's that time of year for fall food plot planning. And this year I'm proud to be working with Vitalize Seed. I work with them because they're great people and they're extremely passionate about wildlife and soil health. My fall food plots will be planted in Vitalize's Carbon Load, a 16-way diverse mix that is highly attractive to whitetails and has countless benefits to soil and soil health. If you've ever been overwhelmed by the hundreds of different seed blends on the market, check out Vitalize's 1-2 planting system. It's designed how nature intended, to make biology work for you. Now each plant species in the blend has the proper ratio of seed to grow synergistically, not allowing any to outcompete another. This provides season-long forage for wildlife as well as benefiting the soil biome. There's no need for complex crop rotations with monocultures that are susceptible to drought and overbrowsing. Whether you plant with fancy no-till equipment or a bag spreader and a lawnmower, Vitalize can work in any food plot. For more information about Vitalize and soil health practices, visit VitalizeSeed.com and be sure to follow them on Instagram and Facebook.
Yeah, and that's extremely expensive. People have no idea the amount of investment that it takes in order to grow uh, that amount of biomass. And for you know, keep keep in mind, and a lot of biologists will tell you that uh, a, a mature whitetail will eat somewhere. I forget what the percentage of body weight is, but a lot of time it comes out somewhere between like four and eight pounds of their body weight, uh, like four eight pounds of of, of material plant matter um, based wow. on their their drive. And that, that's a I lot. never heard that. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> that's a lot, and that's a that's a mature whitetail. You know, um, uh, there's certain points of the year it's going to fluctuate based on uh, bodily demands. You know, when you're developing antlers and fawn production stuff like that, and that's going to fluctuate. And you're you're putting out a highly manicured field, high you know high fertility. Um, plants are just nutrient exchanges for animals. Right is, is what we're talking about. So you're creating something that is uh, is highly attractive and the longer that goes on, the harder it becomes to make things like corn and soybeans profitable. Because corn and soybeans, uh, when you think of, you know, every big deer hunter thinks of Midwest, they think corn and soybeans, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's it's just the thing. And uh, you talked about diversifying your crop rotation. Correct me if I'm wrong, but deer and wildlife had a huge impact on some of those decisions in diversifying, correct? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so it was, it was really a two-pronged reason or two, you know, two reasons that really drove the, the, the need for diversification. One was drought tolerance, you know, limiting the, the, the risk of drought. And the other one's the, the wildlife damage. Um, you know, one thing that can make deer so destructive in corn is you talked about the biomass number. That's really cool to know. And it would be one thing if they would take that from just, you know, an entire plant. Right. But they don't. They go through almost like a salad bar, you yeah. know, <laughs> you, and just take with each nibble, take each plant out of production. You know, you and I were kind of joking today that a corn plant is very very difficult to kill but it's very very easy to take out of production <laughs> you know they just, they just snip and, and bite the the silk at the right time and you know it's done yeah and you know even what's crazy you know a lot of people think that uh wildlife deer in particular aren't going to eat corn until it gets to that stage, until you start to see the silk, you know, the tassels pop out and you start to see the silks of the cob come out. Right. And that's where the damage is going to come from. However, in some of the cases, in a lot of cases where we're at, where the, the, the populations are substantially high, um, they're annihilating corn when it's coming out of the ground. Bingo. And that, and, and that is, the, and that is the big, uh, the big variable in it is how hungry are they? How pressed are they from a, population standpoint you know what what's their food you know how much food source do they have in the bush you know in, in the woods mm-hmm. and if if they're becoming at an unsustainable population level like maybe like they are in the suburbs or in some of these you know areas of, of you know, that, that we farm there's really no other food source so they're going to come for what for what they can eat you know what's I, green and I, then they'll start mowing down corn as soon as it comes up or and soybeans they can almost do more economic damage to soybeans because they just mm-hmm. continually, continually take them down. The soybeans can't get ahead of it, can't, can't grow. They'll just graze it like cattle on pasture. You know, whereas cattle on pasture, you'll move them to another paddock, so the Let pasture can recover. <laughs> you can't move the deer off the off the soybeans. Yeah, unfortunately, not the the level of pressure is pretty crazy. Um, so you, you brought up what's available in the bush, and this is one thing that I don't think a lot of general population quite understands. So like we're driving around the valley today and t- today what we did um, 
we took some time in our schedule and looked at crops together. You know, typically when I come work with you, you know, I'm out scouting fields. You know, you're busy doing a lot of field work. We, we try to collaborate once, once, multiple times a week sometimes and uh, try to come up with game plans that are going to be advantageous to, you know, maximize yield potential. And uh, this time of year being down a little bit, we kind of like to assess. And we're, we're sitting pretty well as far as growing. We had great growing, growing season. Crops look really good. And uh, when we're driving around and we're looking, we're, we're looking at crops, one of the things I notice, and it's not just right where we're talk, we're sitting today, it's throughout the general area that I work in eastern Pennsylvania. When you look at the surrounding vegetation, the surrounding wood type, you know, here there's a lot of lowland stuff, uh, a lot of walnut trees, which we were talking about that earlier. You know, walnut trees have aleopathic abilities that they limit certain plant growth. Right. Um, underneath that, we've got a lot of invasive brush, autumn olive, honeysuckle, things like that. Multiflower rose, yeah. tree of heaven. Yeah, and what what I've noticed happens is, you know, the population of deer that are here, whether you think it's high or whether you don't think it's high, um, the available food source that is naturally being produced is not being replenished because there's too many things that are inhabiting, whether it's too much overstory or there's too much invasives or things like that, but what we're really getting into, in my opinion, is farming is like a supplemental feed to carry the populations that we have. Like, you know, I personally feel there's above average populations of deer based on what I'm seeing. Many hunters will complain they don't see deer. There's not that we need more. We need more. Um, I, I truly believe we're able to sustain the deer population we have because of agriculture. And mm-hmm. you can take that in, you can take that into suburbia. It's the same thing. Think about the investment people do into landscaping, yards, and stuff like that. It's the same concept. There's supplemental feeding, and they're living off of nothing in the woods. But that, that supplementation, yeah. you take that away, there's a problem for the overall herd. Yep, and it's and the animal itself is such a, a resilient, adaptive animal. You know, people sometimes say like, "Oh, you know, they're going to get too, they're going to get too pop, you know, too too dense of a population, and it'll start declining." I, I shake my head when I hear that. Yeah. Like, that's not how deer work. So, uh, you know, they just, they'll, they'll just find a way. Yeah. So when you're talking about diversifying, you said about four or five years ago is about when you had incorporated wheat into the, 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 the conversation. But tell me a little bit about that transition. Like, when did it get to a point where, like, we got to do something different because we're getting our tails kicked in some of these farms with corn and soybeans? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we knew this for, for years, you know, 2013, 2014, and one of the big changes was in 2018, we found out about sorghum. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's called milo. You know, it's a grass-like, it's a grass crop that for a period of its growing season kind of looks like corn, mm-hmm. but then it has a marked difference, has a real nice crimson, you know, seed head that comes out. And it was recommended to us that, hey, this is something you ought to try. It's very, very drought tolerant, mm-hmm. and the deer don't don't want to eat it. All right. Sounds cool. So we'll give it a shot. And like any, it's basically like from a business standpoint, like R and D, you're trying out a new, you're developing a new system, trying to see how it works for you. I mean, you can ask a whole bunch of experts how to do things but until you integrate that, that practice into your system, into your production cycle. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of tuition to pay, <laughs> you yeah, know, a, lot of, a lot of, a lot of things to learn. So sorghum has been one of the, one of the biggest uh, helps and diversification from a, from a deer standpoint for us. Um, it's also very, very drought tolerant. 
So mm-hmm. it's kind of been been serving two purposes there. We saw that last year in 2022, which was probably a one in 25 drought. You know, just one of the one of the worst droughts ever. And it hung in there. You know, it, it still had reduced yields. Don't get me yeah. Wrong. But if if there would have been corn on those acres, it would have been a whole lot less. You know, percentage of of yield. And that's the one thing I want to help people understand. Like if you're, you know, most people are used to seeing corn and soybeans, and then there's other places where you might see nothing but grassland and hay, and people understand why does that not happen? A lot of time it's wildlife. But from a a grain perspective, uh, we were talking about this today. Um, You know, we have fantastic growing conditions this year. You get Mm. fantastic growing conditions, ample moisture, ample sunshine. Um, You stand to have pretty good profitability from corn and soybeans on those bumper years. For sure. But uh, sorghum is a little bit different in that I don't want to say it's defensive because it has the ability to flex out and be really, mm-hmm. really profitable for you. But it's taking that buffer off for you a little bit because it's uh, all the things you just said. It's drought tolerant. It handles the population better. And if if we do run into a situation, it doesn't fall flat on its face quite the same as corn and soybeans. It's kind of a boom or bust thing, and I don't think a lot of people understand that. Yeah, yeah. Corn, you know, for all intents and purposes, with how much it costs to grow an acre of corn or soybeans, you you have to at the very least hit a triple. Can you, know? can, can you enlighten some people on what that looks like? Because I don't think anybody has a clue, and that, those are hard numbers to probably figure. But I mean, can you give us an idea what? what you look at. Yeah, I mean, there, it all depends like what people factor into costs and stuff like that. But I mean, if, if you, I'm, I'm just going to say if, if people start rolling everything together, you know, seed and fertilizer and fuel and insurance and, you know, all the things to, you know, in, you know, the, the, the meme, all the things, yeah. you know, pull it all in. It, it's going to be 750 plus, you know, probably an acre and, and depending how, how it's managed, you know, how much extra stuff is being put on it, what kind of seed decisions are made. You know, it, it's there's so many variables, but you could easily probably spend a thousand dollars an acre to, to to grow a crop. So a lot needs to come back to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And where, um, so so when you're talking about one of the things that people don't understand when you're talking about uh, corn. So you know, we think about uh, corn. You know, a lot of time, deer creatures of edge. People's always saying, you know, they'll take those few outside rounds and, and they'll start eating that, and it, it is. It's really hard to put a number to a value on a corn plant. But the, the thing that people don't understand is the the biggest yield um, loss is when you lose population. Mm-hmm. And yeah, when that sure. happens from the beginning, man, you are. We should explain what start. population is. Population is like the amount of plants per acre. Yeah. You know, we throw that, that term around. But like for corn, you, know, you, you plant 30,000 seeds in the ground and you expect you know, somewhere north of 95% of them to make it to the end. Mm-hmm. But as, as they keep, you know, as mother nature, maybe, the, maybe the bugs in the spring or the deer or the deer, you know, the turkeys will grab a few too. Absolutely. Turkeys can, you know, long bush edges can kind of play Pac-Man. Yeah. They go right down the line and they wait for that little two inch flag to come out. And that tells them that there's a yummy seed yeah. down in the ground and they'll just go like Pac-Man down the line and pick them out. So that population gets decreased. Now it's down to twenty five thousand or twenty two thousand. Yeah. And now you only have so it's not like those those remaining plants can make up that much. They don't. Yeah. Maybe a little bit. But. And, and we don't need to throw these numbers around. But if you want to go up and look at what the the, the 
grain markets are and the prices, it, you already got an idea of how much it costs to invest into that. And I can already tell you that if you drop 30,000 and you lose 5,000 plants per acre from an average standpoint, you're talking about losing a substantial amount of yield. It's not yeah, like that percentage of stand loss is going to equal the same percentage of yield loss. It's greater than that a lot sure, of times. Sure. I mean, you, you might be talking 20, 30%. That's mm-hmm. huge. Possible. Um, so that's a that's a huge huge issue. So sorghum has worked really well. Um, you you've incorporated wheat, but the, the other thing that's interesting that that we were looking, you know, you've got sunflowers out too. Mm-hmm, we do, and uh, that's that's been an experiment for you. That's definitely research and development there. Yeah, but I mean, talk a little bit about that because you're doing when you talk about research and development, you've got a bunch of test plots out. Like this is not something you're just well, we're going to try this on a field and see if it works. Like you're trying to figure out how to bring this into an operation scale. And keep in mind when you're talking three thousand acres, there's, I mean, I'm just throwing numbers out. Tell me if I'm wrong, but we're probably looking at what five six hundred acres of sorghum. Uh, yeah, we're over five hundred acres of sorghum this year. The, the 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 sunflowers we tried, I think we put seventy acres of full season sunflowers out. Yeah, and when I say uh, full season, that was planted you know early in yeah, spring, right? And then corn and beans are still part of your rotation, but Absolutely. they're strategically placed. Yep. So we're and and it's it's a really good to see this this pie chart beginning this begin to develop for us from a almost a split fifty fifty corn and beans to now twenty percent sorghum, you know thirty percent. Corn, mm-hmm. such and such percent soybeans. We have the two fall small grains, you know, barley and wheat. You know, and that gives us the barley and wheat gives us the ability to plant soybeans later. We can come back double crop after the after the wheat and the and the the barley comes off. So it just further helps diversify. Now it's not all roses, you know, it's not all it's not all easy. All this stuff adds adds effort, adds cost, you know, adds you know, inefficiency. So it's it's always a balancing act that I'm trying to you know, trying to look at. Yeah, the sunflowers, though. I mean, you've, you right now you've got test plots out. You've got strips that you're 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 monitoring what certain varieties. You know, there's there's different seed varieties within a, a plant species. So you know, we're looking at sunflowers that have different characteristics, and you know, which ones are going to work best for your soil, and can that come into your operation? You're doing the same thing with sorghum, and how do you balance it to then balance your harvest window? And and there's there's so much that goes into it. And uh, we could probably beat a dead horse in going down the logistics of farming from the beginning of the calendar year to the end of the calendar year. Um, I, I wanted to give those perspectives, and I, I kind of wanted to bug you with some thoughts of when, when people who don't understand agriculture, they just deer hunt. Let's just look through the lens of somebody who is all about deer hunting, whether they want to see high volumes of deer, whether they, um, you know, they're like me and they want to shoot a trophy buck. Um, and, and the logic, um, you know, th- there's a, th- there, I, I've heard very generic statements and I'm just going to throw generic statements out at you and see what your thoughts are. But first of all, a lot of people say, well, well, why do I care if I want to shoot deer? If I'm interested in deer, why does that matter to me? If you're struggling, I mean, you're just adapting. That's just life, right? And, uh, th- there's more to it. And I want to know your reaction to some of that stuff. Yeah. And that's understandable. I mean, I, I, at one point in my life was a big sportsman as well. You know, I, I did a whole lot of bow hunting, you know, years ago and a whole lot of rifle hunting. I don't have as much time to do that mm-hmm. anymore. You know, I still getting, enjoy getting out with the rifle and it's still, you know, I still get that pump, you know, when I see the, when I see the, when I see the buck walk up to me or when I see even just out with the spotlight, you get to see that really big buck. So I, yeah. I, I get that same adrenaline drive and 
I totally get it. You know, and, and a lot of it just comes from just not understanding, you know, those type of comments just come from not understanding, you know, what, what goes into it, what goes into farming, you know, the effort. So it, it's, it's understandable. It is understandable, but I think perspective in the big picture, because we get stuck and I've, I've talked about this so many times, but I think we get stuck in narrow mindedness of like, almost like the, is I, is I, is idolizing the word I'm looking for, like just that lot, that thought of the, the, this big buck that I'm after or this desire to see a certain amount of deer. Um, like we get so fixated on that when there's so many more important things in life. And a lot of the time, the angle I come from is just the time you spend doing something that you love and the time you take away from family. But uh, the other end of that is the big picture from the surrounding habitat and the impact it has on mm-hmm. folks like yourself who are feeding America. Yeah. That really remind you know, you, you asked me about what kind of changes have I seen generally, generationally from farming. Well, that, that kind of sparks, there's been big generational changes in hunting as well. Big time. And when I think back, even just, just in the time that I've been hunting, I'm 42, 12, 30 years, I guess. Um, it was way more when I was younger, it was way more about the experience, mm-hmm. it was way more about the camaraderie with with the other men the camp life or the roster life you know coming back to process those deer and and it's that, it's that shared experience and you know i get it i'm not, not in any way bashing it but it has shifted way more towards the hunting of the trophy an you know? individual sport. yes it's an individual sport now um yeah you know, i'd say with some people it has really really flipped where years ago the quote-unquote right way you know, I'm not saying one's right or one's wrong, right. but, you know, the accepted way to hunt years ago was be part of a group. You know, you put a big drive on in the mountains and the bushes and, and you weren't as concerned about hunt, you know, getting the, the, the trophy buck because you, you shot what came to you. Yeah. You know, when the six point came, it was your turn. That was, that was the buck you, that was the buck you had an opportunity at you. And every once in a while, maybe every five years, 10 years, you had a awesome shot at a really, really nice buck. But there was no scouting, no, you know, none of that stuff that, that goes on today. Now, now fast forward to today, it's much more of a, you said, an individualized sport, um, much more focused on equipment and scouting and scent. And and don't get me wrong, you spend the time at it, that is absolutely the way to shoot a trophy buck. I mean, lots of guys do it every, you know, the, the success rate has probably drastically increased where maybe someone hunting the camp life way when a roster might shoot a trophy buck once every 10 years. Now, if you put the time in the, you can do it annually, 80 hours, 220 hours, 200 hours of fall, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. You know, piles of time and really know your area and know your craft. You can, you can absolutely, you know, increase your chances of taking a trophy buck fairly regularly. That was the one thing I wanted to highlight too, because you and your family enjoy hunting. Like we, we've already established that. Like you guys enjoy. My dad, especially that is my dad's like passion. He loves. Yeah. So much so that there's like six or seven acres up here that came out of production to just be deer. Yeah. (laughs) It's it's his his deer field in front of his new, new tree stand. Exactly. (laughs) So like bring that into perspective. So, you know, keep in mind, like you guys don't want to rid the world of something that's causing you financial stress because you guys enjoy it. And, you know, we, we talk about the individualistic stuff and, you know, have it's like putting food plots out to harvest deer and stuff like there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I wanted people to kind of think about it from the perspective of everybody needs to know what's best for them. But at the same time, 
keep in mind the scope of how self-centered you get within this because I've put the blinders on trying to shoot a big deer. It has robbed me from time with my family and stress in that case. Um, another thing that I can do when I, when I think you think about the population or, you know, I'm not going to, I'm going to shoot a trophy buck and I'm going to hold out until I do that. And then maybe I'll think about harvesting an antlerless deer. Um, you're, you're, you know, we could make the argument you're shooting yourself in the foot in the long run for what you could possibly do in the hunting season, bringing meat in, but you're, you're, you're not helping out for the greater good of your surrounding area, whether it's for farming, whether it's for, um, the native habitat and, you know, carrying capacity issues. And that's a whole different conversation, but I think it's still important to bring into the conversation. Like think about it from outside of your filling my buck tag. Yeah. Well, I mean, you said doe hunting, you know, doe hunting has taken, it has a much different meaning now for a lot of people because, you know, you look at it through the lens of the camp life or the hunting group. That was just another way to be together as a group and to spend time with friends and family. And then, you know, as you bagged a couple doe, now you had, you know, most guys would butcher them together and mm-hmm. do that post-processing. Maybe that took one or two times. You know, now you have another opportunity to get the, get the guys together and build that, that camaraderie. That is very, very rare today. And now it's more transactional. You know, you get a doe, it has to go to the, to the butcher you know, you buy yourself. It's 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 work to get these things out by themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's not a you know the juice isn't worth the squeeze for a lot of people. So they want to let the dough go. I'm just I'm just really looking for the trophy. I'm not as interested in the meat or the or the experience. Mm-hmm. You know, so I don't need to. You know, so there's a lot of folks out there, and I, I get it, but don't don't seem to be too interested in in shooting dough. Yeah, the so. uh, the camaraderie aspect, you know, I've talked about, I've, I'm fortunate. I still belong to a cabin where we have that camaraderie aspect. And I think it's good. Um, we talked about this in the past and I kind of wanted to revisit it. You talked about like what kind of positive positivity that has for your own mental health throughout the busy time of the year. But even when you're talking about younger generations, um, I think that's big. And you talked about that a little bit, like what, like that was important to you growing up. And that was things that, you know, it's time with, with the guys and, and, and freedom and stuff. And it's, it's good to instill into, into the youth and, and some of mm-hmm. that case. Yeah. I mean, for the most part, it was a male only space. I mean, there was, you know, obviously, you know, sometimes some ladies would hunt and, and this and that, but it was a really, really great opportunity for young boys to see their dads interact with their friends, to see their grandfathers interact with, with their, their peers and, you know, learn history, learn how to, how to conduct yourself in that kind, you know, in a, in, in, in the environment, you know, out and about. And like I said, I kind of look at it through, you know, nostalgic lens because a lot of, a lot of ways that kind of stuff, that kind of opportunity for, for our boys doesn't mm-hmm. exist anymore. It's tough. Yeah. It's not the same. It's so not then the same. it's, I think you think about kids and what they've got wrapped up nowadays, you know, whether it's uh, baseball, football, a lot of that's uh, group sports stuff with with kids and stuff like that. It's I think it's a little bit easier to incorporate a kid into something like that when there's a group of people involved. Right. Um, you know, let's face it, we're in the day and age now where everybody's complaining about kids having their nose in a screen, and um, I question, and I'm, I'm genuinely wondering what I'm going to do as a father as my kids grow older, in 
not necessarily saying they're going to be deprived of that, but incorporating them into the things that are truly enjoyable, meaningful, and like things that are just, as, as good old Ted Nugent says, good for the soul. Right on. And uh, that's that's really tough. Um, and I think the camaraderie aspect of it. So um, I we're, we're talking about something that there's like a division within the hunting community. There's, there's definitely like the mindset of solo. I'm going to set my property up with minimal intrusion. And I'm going to shoot the best buck and, and try to bring the whole entire herd to this. And then there's the other side of things where we've talked about where we're going to try to do as many drives and stuff as possible. And mm-hmm. we're going to have fun doing that. Personally, there's nothing wrong with either style of hunting. Right. What, whether whether or not you like the other style of hunting or not, like keep in mind there's nothing wrong with that. So if, if you're listening to this and you're into property management, I love doing that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, no, there, there's nothing wrong with Dustin in your group going to shoot a bunch of deer because you have different goals and objectives than I do. Right. Um, but I don't know, and and this yeah, is if your if your goal and objective is to shoot a shoot a trophy buck every year, every two years, you know, and you really enjoy checking trail cams and, and scouting. That is absolutely the way to 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 accomplish that goal. You know, that's your goal. That's that's the way to go about it. And this is a tough question to answer. This is kind of just open ended thought. Like, what do we got to do as a community to somehow meet in the middle? And I don't I don't know what the answer is to that. And from your lens through agriculture i wonder what your perspective is yeah i i really don't know what the what the answer to that would be for us as a business it's been to to adapt to maybe play play defense or be reactive in terms of the crops that we that we that we grow there's other practice changes that we've made too yeah um but probably the biggest difference was was growing different crops we're also um removing the amount of strips you know, so if you visualize That's a great point, we got to touch on. If you visualize a big hill, you know, big, big, highly erodible hillside. Maybe it's thirty-five, forty acres that goes from said township road up to the mountain. Well, years ago, that was quote unquote stripped off like a comb. Yep. Maybe thirty or forty-five foot strips when they did it with with horses. Over the years, those strips have increased as the equipment has increased in size, mm-hmm. and we kind of are at maybe a one hundred and eighty to two hundred some foot strip. But each field edge you have carries inefficiency. I mean, we got to go in there with multiple times for the multiple crops and turn around and drive stuff down. There's overlap and things that happen. But what's bigger is those field edges are like buffet lines. Bingo. Uh, it was it was eye-opening two years ago. I was walking some fields, checking. I happened to just hop in the field edge to make some time. And there was tracks all over the place. Yeah, just, right where that like, corn and soybean yep, line met. Right in that joint between the corn and soybeans. They just walk it like a like a highway. Mm-hmm. And they say, Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna hop off here at McDonald's or I'm just gonna go down the road a little bit and get off at Burger King. So it serves as like a highway for them. And by now we call it farming it in blocks, but farming the entire thing in one crop mm-hmm. and doing other other things to, to mitigate erosion, that's been huge for 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 uh, for wildlife or deer damage. Because it eliminates all those ingress yeah. points. The, the more that you can make it a block, the less of that edge damage you're going to have, which is ultimately going to reduce how far in they go and, and reduce that feeding, which right. is really important. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, it's, oh, 
I, I, I struggle with it all the time because I'm stuck somewhere in the middle. Because I've told you this, like I, I love, yeah, you're a sportsman. I, I, I love it. I, I mean, I've, I, I always have, but I'm not afraid to, to shoot some deer. So, talking about measures of, of trying to alleviate this. Let's, you're, you know, from your perspective, you're trying to um, adjust your crop rotation to maintain profitability, increase mm-hmm. profitability. I mean, your goal is to increase it all the time. We yeah. don't want to stay stagnant in any cases. So crop rotation, the practices in which you, you orient. When we still can't have um, the, the the level of control from the wildlife side of things, this isn't something you're doing, but I know it's something that happens throughout the country and even in parts of the state where you're going to start to incorporate crop damage harvest mm-hmm. into that. For sure. And uh, that is a completely legal thing to do. It um, there's a, there's a process in which farmers can do it, but it's really not what you want to do for a couple of reasons. Right? Yeah. Some some growers definitely choose to go that path, and there's varying levels. Um, one tool that that in, in our toolbox that we encourage and we use quite a bit, Pennsylvania Game Commission has the DMAP program, mm-hmm. Deer Management Assistant Program. You I got think. it. So that's a pretty darn good program because it lets landowners get more doe tags. Yeah. And those landowners can control how, you know, who gets those coupons and it can give a landowner the ability to, to harvest a few more doe from their property in deer season. Right. Okay. So DMAP is additional doe tags in deer season. Correct. Um, it does, I can never quite keep track of this, but it lets you shoot doe in rifle season when buck are in. I don't know if they still have that. Yeah, I think now they changed it. That it's hard to keep uh, up with, isn't it? It, it is. I'm, I'm pretty sure last year they finally con, conjoined doe and buck season again for the first week. But there was a time, yes, where the first week of, of the season was was buck only, and then the second weekend right. was when doe opened up. But during that first week, you could shoot a doe. And that's, that's one of my biggest arguments I've had from a population standpoint is the minute the guns start cracking – Yes. Uh, that adds pressure. And the perfect example I'm going to give with this, I hunted last year, uh, New Jersey had a statewide uh, emergency action plan to incorporate a bear season. And they hadn't had a bear hunt in, in two or three years. And man, I was hearing stories of, of farmers that were killing multiple bear in a day for crop damage. And there's all these human conflict interactions. I'm thinking, man, I might have a good chance of, of coinciding with a bear on this hunt. And, you know, right leading up to the season, it was it was closed off due to an anti-hunting protest, and it, they closed it for the first two days, but then it got reopened midweek. So I went down and learned quickly that the amount of hunting pressure that occurred during the first two days of their firearm season hold stuff up in swamps. Mm. So even though there's a high population, they know the pressure's there, and they, they know, know where to go pressure, safe. And, and it's the same up. thing with the deer. Absolutely the same thing with deer. Once, once that mountain or that bush or those, you know, that... that that woodlot gets tracked up with scent and a couple guns crack, they they go nocturnal mm-hmm. and they have to be pushed. And that to loop back to the whole not not driving or you mm-hmm. know get, not getting you know moving away from that idea of getting guys together. Now you rely on natural movement, and once they've been pressured, that natural that natural movement contracts to like maybe a little bit in the morning and maybe a little bit at night, and it's usually not the biggest ones that want to do that. Yeah, it's the it's so you the... got to move them. Exactly. And I'm going to talk out of both sides of my mouth here on this conversation because I've talked strategies of how to make that better when the guns start cracking. If you want to see a buck get to the next age class, there's strategies to do that. Um, the, the problem is, how are you going to find the balance? And I think it's really hard for all of us. And it, it's 
like I said, we're, we, this, this whole conversation, none of it's going to give answers, but sure. it's, it's hoping to give perspective yeah. because if, if you have that property that has, um, the lack of pressure that deer are going to go to, I think it's a great opportunity for you to really assess how many deer are utilizing that property after the season. And when you go in there, what, what's the browse pressure like, is, is there an overabundance to the point where it's going to have an impact on your property because for the long term, that's going to have effects for you while it's having immediate effects on you as the farmer, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I, uh, from the, from the, from the end of, of farming and stuff, I mean, was, was there stuff that I, I, I skimmed over or things I missed, you know, when it comes to your operation of what you're trying to do in, in order to be combative against this because from my point of view you know we're talking we we complain about deer a lot but at the same time i think you you as an operation do a very good job of being conformative amidst an area that's very high in its hunting heritage a lot of landowners like their hunting and want to do well and that and and back to your earlier question i got uh sidetracked there with with the whole with the whole dmat thing but yeah there there is there, there is the ability for for growers to get help from the game commission to take deer out of season to crop damage deer, whatever you want to call it. We've chosen not to do that because we're sportsmen as well. And we understand that a lot of our neighbors and friends and, and relatives and landowners are sportsmen too. So Mm -hmm. that's, that's been the driving reason why our, our course of action has been more defensive or reactive. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, what really concerns me is that, you know, back to that exponential or linear, you know, yeah, linear the chart, it, uh, it's not heading in a good direction. You know, we keep getting increased populations and increased populations. It's just, you know, becomes, it's, it's almost unsustainable. Yeah. And then you're, then that's where you run into the side where we talked about DMAP and, and stuff like that. Um, the state also has the, uh, the program. It was formerly known as the red tag program. Now it's, uh, now it's they, they deemed it something different oh, they now. Renamed it. They renamed it, and it's uh, the the Not quite the, so mean. <laughs> the orientation of it is a little bit different. So years ago, correct me if I'm wrong. I think for the red tag, you enrolled, and then all the the paperwork side of things, were, you know, relied on you. Like you had to issue the tag, and then they came to you, and you did the reporting. Now. It's like a, it's, it's, they're called ag tags. Mm. Basically, um, you're allocated a certain amount of coupons and then somebody wants to come onto the farm and shoot a deer during that time frame, which I think is somewhere between August leading up to season. And then it goes from about February about to April 15th when, when they have that extended ag tag season, you hand them a coupon and they're, they're, they then process that and they get an ag tag antlerless deer tag and then the rest of the reporting goes on them so that's that's another option that some people are utilizing but now you're increasing um that that harvest window increasing pressure on deer and and when you start to get into that things uh, that it's it's great for you it causes some uh stress in the neighborhood and one of the biggest concerns you have like you can't you don't want to lose ground you don't want to develop bad relationships no that's that's relationships that have been built generationally. Yeah. You know, that's, that's pivotal to our business. People, you know, people that are critical to our business, we don't, you know, are interested in, in, you know, hurting that relationship. But you know, another important thing to, for your, your listeners to realize is that it's not just a problem of two or three deer mm. that's taken care of. I mean, it is, it is big in places. 
and to give a perspective dozens of deer need to remove be removed from different different places so it's it now becomes you know like how in the world do you do such a thing it's not like oh we're going to go shoot two deer and now the problem solved yeah you know it's it's way way bigger than that yeah and the uh to give a perspective of how bad it is you have fields that are 20 30 acres of soybeans that uh this year we we were concerned that they were going to create a harvestable population and it was coupled because number one we did have a, a very dry spell in the beginning of the year and slow slow growth but uh the the amount of deer pressure that happened it, it brought it to the point where we thought they were going to be over browsed and not not recover and that's a huge investment mm-hmm. yep yep so some other tools that are in our toolbox that we're trying there there is new products you know, spray products that come out every year mm-hmm. that are lab- that are referred to as wildlife repellents. Yeah. You know, some of them are bone meal products that smell really bad or others are pepper capsaicin based. Mm-hmm. Um, none of them to date work that well. Most no, I think we have like Mexican deer and they like, that's like salad dressing. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. It's like, Ooh, there's salsa on it. Most of the problem with those things is they're not they're not rain fast. Right. So you spend all this effort, all these dollars, you go spray a bunch of things, and two days later it rains and it's all gone. Mm-hmm. At some point, there's probably going to be some good products that come out that are what we would call systemic. They stay in the plant. They create some bittering agent, or for mm-hmm. some reason, discourage deer. But back to my earlier comment: once they get so hungry, they're gonna they're gonna eat what they need to. Absolutely. So it'll it'll discourage them, you know, to a point. Yeah, one of the things I posted on uh, I posted on my page on Instagram a couple times is I, I have some other growers that are actually putting up fences. They're putting up mm. dual perimeter electric fences with a solar panel, and that's another form of repellent. Um, that's a huge investment, not necessarily from the financial. There's definitely a financial aspect, but with the amount of grain that you can retain back in one year, uh, you may pay for that in one season with the amount of pressure you have, but it's a huge time investment. And and, I mean, so I bring that into your perspective with the amount of acres that you farm, um, time is of the essence when you're, when it's time to get work done. So if if we go out and say, we're also going to start putting up fences around everything, that's just not feasible. Yeah. For me that, I mean, we, we talked about that a bit and it is a really, really effective idea. Um, but for us, it just really wasn't feasible. And it's again, one of the reasons why we shifted in the direction that we're going with, you know, growing alternative crops. Mm-hmm. And like I said, you talked about those alternative crops. And again, you're, you're growing sorghum because it's it's better for that. Deer eat sorghum. I mean, I put sorghum in food plots, but they're going to eat yeah. it when the heads come out. Yeah, that, that's an important uh, an important thing to point out there about sorghum is like throughout the vegetative state, you know, while it's growing, the deer almost don't even want to walk through it for some reason. Yeah. They, they won't eat it. They won't browse it. Once the grain becomes what we farmers would call fit or physiologically mature, you know, ready to ready to harvest, mm-hmm. it almost flips like a like a snap of a finger and becomes very very attractive food, and they'll just come and start eating the heads. And they can take, you know, coming from from the bush edges, deer can take from a field of sorghum in ten days or two weeks in terms of yield. From sorghum, what it took them all season to take from corn. So harvest one of the one of the biggest bugaboos about about sorghum is harvest timing. Yeah. Once it's ready, that needs to be the focus. You have to be prepared and ready from a manpower and equipment standpoint to go harvest the sorghum, because letting it stand for two weeks or four weeks or eight weeks too long, they'll the deer will come and eat the eat the yield away from you. Right. And then you talked about barley and wheat, which barley and wheat 
are really unique in that in the wintertime, it does get grazed really heavy by deer, but it does such a good job of bouncing back and retaining grazing. So, you know, one thing I think that people don't realize is you're doing the wildlife a benefit in a case by putting out something like that and harvesting a grain that you're able to retain profitability. So you talked about cereal grains um, and then uh, tinkering with sunflowers, which, you know, still has uh, some wildlife attraction, but it's, it's diversifying to the point where, you know, hopefully there's enough variety out there that, you know, you're going to get those concentrated selectors and you're, you're going to hopefully overwhelm them with different things that are going to mature at different times, have different uh, characters. Hopefully that, that yeah. alleviates that. And I think that's really important to, to, to understand, but a lot of this doesn't come. And I think that's the hardest thing for people to understand. Uh, people just say, well, why, why don't you grow this? Why don't you do this? Why don't you do this? Well, it's really hard to put that into an operation scale when you've got this much investment on the line. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's all managing risk. You got to start off small if you want to try something new and, you know, learn it. I hate to use the word perfect it, but try to, you know, get the bugs worked out to where it's you know, something that can be, can be done at scale. All right. Well, I really appreciate this conversation. I really appreciate the way this goes. One thing I'd like, uh, like for you to kind of close this with is give us an idea of what you've, you know, from where you've come to where would you like to go within your operation? Um, and, and that could be, um, that could be anywhere down the road. I'm, I'm curious just to give people an idea of the goals of a grain farmer in Pennsylvania. Right. I think, I, I really feel like we're at an inflection point right now. And I would really, it, we, we've, we actually started on this in the last year or two to head down a path that is more regenerative. Labels get thrown around too much these days, you know, mm-hmm. you're organic and this and that. So I'll, I'll use the regenerative label. But what that means to us is that we're going to be using more and more cover crops. We're going to be even more mindful of soil health, trying to reduce the use of synthetic fertilizers, reduce the use of synthetic herbicides where possible, and um, you know, even possibly integrate animals. Mm-hmm. You know, that's from a from a soil health standpoint, that is really the pinnacle, you know, or the or the keystone is integrating animals onto an acre. You talk about getting something ready for production scale, that that's that's way out. But um but that that is really the the direction that I would love to, you know, love to see us continue to, to go on is taking more you know, we've all, I think we've always done a great job, but absolutely. But as as the industry learns more about what we should be doing in terms of soil health, I want to be on the on the wave that's riding that in the future and, and doing what we can. And, and let me throw this into that too, because there, there's probably people listening to this that are um, knowledgeable when it comes to regenerative ag. They're knowledgeable when it comes to cover crops and soil health and uh, and think, well, why aren't you doing this? The, I mean, this is the way to like, like that's just stupid that you wouldn't be yeah, doing just, that. Just per, turn the key in and you yeah. know, stick the key in and turn it and, and go organic or the, go this or that. The, Im- the implementation of some of those practices are not easy. Mm-hmm. When you think For about sure. how we've developed and it's it's nobody's fault I mean, it's been the learning curve of agriculture i mean you think about where we've come from from the dust bowl to the regenerative no-till practice we have now it's been a learning curve but in like we, we can't tap into a farmer's pocket just because it's going to keep somebody's narrative happy like right. that that's that's something i will stress home and i, I had a, a conversation with somebody who was not agriculturally you know ag-minded but they were very um biologically minded understood plants understood the basis of farming 
and had some really, really negative comments about farmers and what they do. I'm like, you have no idea the amount of work and effort and things that farmers do in order to maintain profitability. And, and to just say that we need to stop doing this certain practice or, you know, the things that you don't need all those chemicals. You don't need all that nitrogen. Right. The air has nitrogen. Just produce it in the soil. Yeah, make it, exactly. How do you make a plant available? How do you do this? How do you do that? How do you time this? And there's like, that's a, that's, there's a million other podcasts for that. We could probably go down a rabbit hole conversation that people wouldn't want to listen to for, but, but that, that's big. But that, that sentiment and that, that lack of understanding in the general public is really the fault of farming that we don't really tell our own story. We've been so good at working and taking care of the land and doing what we need to. Farmers don't, in general, make it a point to be out there telling their story on social media and on YouTube. Now, that is really starting to change. There's, there's a lot of influencers that are really telling the story well of what, of what farmers are doing. But, you know, for a lot of years, uh, you know, our story wasn't really being told. Have you had um, experiences in your life, whether it's with landowners or just people that you know that you that you were able to enlighten just because of what you do? And it's it's whoa, that's way more than I expected it to be. Yeah, all, all the time. I really enjoy it. You know, I, I really enjoy having the opportunity to, like this this platform here. I appreciate. But when I bump into somebody that's not familiar with farming or agriculture, it's it's really a fun experience to you know help broaden the horizon just a little bit with what what goes into it it is and like i said i didn't have any narrative or agenda with this conversation i just wanted it to give perspective because as as this airs we're less than a month away from the hunting season and everybody's got their ideas of what they want to do and how they want to do it and i just wanted to keep people in mind that like look um whether you're you, you think one way or another like keep some other people in your mind as you're hunting too like it, it's it doesn't have to be so individualistic whether that means you're you're shooting you're just shooting your buck uh maybe it's you're just shooting it you know a doe to, to fill your freezer but the the impact that has is greater than just you pulling the trigger there's mm-hmm. there's a greater impact in that and uh you know it comes to the it comes to the population thing uh, that's going to be a continual problem um i mean i know you know letting people listen to you know, the, the struggles you have as a farmer isn't going to just automatically flip a switch and we're going to start shooting more deer. I wish that'd be the case in some places, but I, I know it won't be. Uh, it really comes back to what you said when it comes to farmer outreach, education and understanding of what's actually happening. Yeah. And uh, that's what we're trying. But cool. uh, no, uh, this has been good. Uh, I think it's a good point to, to end it. Um, I know you try to do a little bit of social media here and there for your 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 for you take videos and stuff and send it to your clients and stuff, but sure. do you actually put anything out that people can see like you in the grain bins or doing something cool. I like don't that? have any social media accounts yet that are, that are forward facing for the farm. We did just set up a website though. So if oh, you did go you? to, yeah, if you go to Kiefer that's K I E F F E R A N D S O N.com. That's our new website okay. that we just set up. That's kind of archaic now to point people to websites instead of your, your Twitter or your, your Instagram. But that's where I'm at. Yeah, but you know what? I, I like that better anyway because you don't have the the other junk that gets piled in with social media next to a page like that. But no, that's good. And um, there's, a, there's a lot of other cool things that we probably could have talked about, but I think that's a good way to put it. So just some perspective. I appreciate your perspective because – you and your family enjoy hunting. For you're, sure. You're, you're not looking to eradicate something. And I say that because I work with growers that have that mindset. Yeah, and I can totally see how, how growers can develop that. Absolutely. I mean, there are yeah, – I, I, I totally get it. I've heard, had conversations with growers that when they hear CWD, 
That's like an angel singing to them. It's like a good thing to them. Yeah. yeah and I, that's that's not good either. That's no. not good for the animals. It's not good for the population. No, it's it's, it's terrible in all cases. Yeah. Point. We all suffer from that. And, but like, uh, like you said, there's got to be a middle ground somewhere. And, you know, it's, it's probably a combination of, you know, education and people starting to understand a little bit more. You know, things like the DMAP program are great. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe just having more people have access to, to, to hunting grounds. Yeah, do you get do you get the the doors pounded um, throughout the years of people that want to hunt any ground that you guys own? Not a whole lot, not like it used to be. Honestly, yeah. years years ago there used to be a lot of cold call people people stopping in, but I think the the uh, the understanding that prospective hunters should build a relationship with their landowners is becoming known. A lot more people, you know, call up and say, "Hey, can I can I hunt some groundhogs in summer?" And they'll work at maybe building a relationship that way or mm-hmm. can I hunt a little bit of turkey and then then they'll work into finding a spot somewhere on our ground to, to hunt deer that business of people stopping in the first day of deer season and knocking on your door that I don't that doesn't really happen much anymore so it, it we still get people interested but they're I'll say doing it the right way they're trying to build a relationship add a bit of value and you know and to get the opportunity to, to hunt. And that's important this day and age just because, you know, if somebody comes onto your your land, um, you want to know that they're a responsible right. individual. And that's a, that's a whole other can of worms. Yep. But. Yeah, I would definitely encourage listeners, if they don't have really good access to, to hunting ground, to try to build a relationship with a landowner or a farmer. You know, try mm-hmm. to find a way to add value to them. Maybe you can offer to help unload some hay or straw in the summer or shoot groundhogs you know it's a great way to develop your long-range skills and and get rid of a couple couple pesky critters for a farmer and you've you've created a way to build a relationship with that with that landowner and maybe have a opportunity to find yourself a, a good spot in a, in a great hollow crossing in fall yeah and i know like from your perspective it's it's not a burden when there's intent greater than my own self-interest of shooting deer like that's important to you as a landowner and a farmer that like i i i I would appreciate your your help and stuff what even if it's just as simple as leaving it better than the way you found it when you step onto my property um that that's important because a landowner is going to be concerned about liability too yeah they just let any old person that they don't know come on their first thought is is this person going to be safe or am I going to get bullet holes in my in my roof or my, my farm pickup or something like that? So that that building relationship with with a prospective landowner that you want to hunt on, rather than just knocking and saying, "Can I hunt up there?" Yeah, is is huge. Yeah, and I, I think that goes back to what we were talking about and how things have changed. Like the, the pace of life is really really fast now. And I think it always is getting faster. Yeah, and I think in some on something like that, the more you can slow down, I think the better long term approach you have if you want to hunt ground that somebody owns like get that. back to the good old-fashioned just build a relationship yeah yeah and then you still have potential to accomplish your goals over time but in- incorporate that so i think that's a good place to, right to leave it um appreciate you, anything you want to leave us with no i think this was, this was a great podcast a great you know great conversation i really appreciate the opportunity we're biased we like farming this. yeah yeah <laughs> wasn't too hard of a too heavy of a lift <laughs> all right good deal